0: Welcome to the Fresh and Salty Podcast, a show of the National Estuarine Research Reserve Association in partnership with Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. My name is Peter Ravella, and I'm the host of the show. Coastal communities are in a time of unprecedented change. Warming seas full of extreme storms, harmful algal blooms, king tides, and other sources threaten property and infrastructure, business, and even people. These changes are threatening the foundations of coastal community life around the American shoreline. Communities need reliable information to make sense of this constantly changing world. Reserves keep watch over the changing coastal environments and provide data that is essential to community resilience. The National Estuarine Research Reserve System operates a system-wide monitoring program often referred to as SWAMP, and that is the subject matter of the show today. Joining us today are two of the experts on the front lines of this issue. Dr. Carrie Saint Laurent is the research coordinator at the Delaware Reserve And her colleague, Dr. Jude Apple, is the manager of the Padilla Bay Reserve in Washington state. Welcome both of you to the Fresh and Salty podcast.
1: Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here.
2: Yes. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Well, Dr. Saint Laurent, if you would, and if you don't mind, we'll we'll use Carrie, uh, your first name. Uh, Introduce our audience, if you would, to the Delaware Reserve.
2: Sure. Thank you. So the Delaware Reserve is a two component reserve. So we have actually two locations that we monitor. The first location is located in the capital of the first state, Delaware, um, in Dover. And so we have the St. Jones Reserve component there and it is a pretty traditional and classic salt marsh. Um, We have fiddler crabs and on our beaches we have um, the world's largest spawning population of the Atlantic horseshoe crab. And so there's a lot of really interesting and dynamic critters that, that call it its home. Um, our second reserve component is about 30 minutes north in Townsend, Delaware, so that's in Newcastle County and it is a more tidal freshwater, slightly oligohaline um, uh, tidal marsh and so it's mostly freshwater. we have a real mix of different vegetation types, some are more traditionally salty, um, species, some are more traditionally freshwater species, and so it's a really um, interesting and dynamic place to study. So it makes for a really interesting comparison um, just in a half hour time difference um, of two very different habitats that we can look at.
0: Interesting. How many acres carry did these two components of the reserve occupy? And how many people a year come to the Delaware Reserve roughly speaking?
2: We, um, in the Delaware Reserve, protect over 6,000 acres of natural habitat. Part of our mission at the Delaware Near is trying to actively restore some of the components. Um, And so we've been conducting a really large reforestation effort in our Blackbird Creek component, which is the uh, Townsend Delaware component. Um, In terms of how many people we get a year, it really varies. We don't have the ability to track how many people come and walk our trails um, from What I see visually when I'm going there and doing my research is it's quite a few. Um, We have some really good walking trails at at both locations that folks can bird and do other great wildlife um, observations.
0: Well, as folks are listening to the show, if you have access to a computer, uh, Google up the Delaware Reserve and you can get the photos. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, Dr. Apple, out in the great state of Washington in the Pacific Northwest, uh, tell us about the Padilla Bay Reserve that you manage i'd be happy
1: to and i'd like to certainly start by saying that the padilla bay national estuarine (laughs) research reserve is located in the traditional unceded lands of our swinomish samish and newaa tribal partners and has been the the home of the coast salish people since time immemorial Um, they were the original stewards of these lands and and air and water and it's an honor to continue that tradition of stewardship and education Mm -hmm. as an national National Estuarine Research Reserve. Um, Padilla Bay has a number of great attributes. It's on the other side of the United States from Delaware and there's some big differences. We're a macro tidal system. Our tides throughout the course of the day in on certain days can be 12 to 14 feet tidal exchange. Um, We also have one of the largest eelgrass meadows in North America. We have over 8,000 acres of eelgrass, which is home and habitat to um, salmonid, young fish, and heron, and um, Dungeness crab, and a lot of the other great tasting organisms we appreciate here in the Pacific Northwest. And our reserve as a whole, including the eelgrass and uplands, is about 12,000 acres that we protect.
0: So important. Uh, you know, we're going to, we're talking today in this program about the near system wide monitoring program. This is the scientific program. Uh, that allows uh, each of the reserves to track the conditions and the reserves that you manage and oversee and try to find changes. Uh, Carrie, would you be so kind to give us an overview of the, what is called the SWAMP system?
2: Sure, so SWAMP, which is the system-wide monitoring program, is kind of the cornerstone uh, monitoring program of the NEARS. And so each one of the 29 National Estuarine Research Reserves monitor water quality, nutrient, and meteorological parameters the same way. And so this standardization allows for a really robust um, kind of platform of data that allows us to make local, regional, and national comparisons.
0: It's an extraordinary undertaking. Uh, nationally unique data sets going back decades in many of these reserves, 280 stations nationally in the reserve system, 40 million publicly available data points every year. What an extraordinary uh, system of monitoring. Uh, Jude, why is it important that we track and understand the conditions in the reserves that you oversee and your colleagues around the country?
1: Well, Peter, The way to answer that question is to roll back to the original establishment of the system-wide monitoring program and its intent. And the goal of this system was to look at changes in the coastal watersheds and our coastal areas and really begin to better understand how coastal development and the process of eutrophication or delivery of nutrients into our estuarine systems, how that was affecting water quality and changing how swimmable drinkable and fishable those waters are. So the, the original um, design of the system was really to look at nutrients and water quality and link that to changes in the watershed at each reserve.
0: Science for science sake is, is important. Understanding what's happening in the world, measuring the changes around us, of course, is critically important. But Carrie, there's more going on here in terms of what the National Estuarine Research Reserve System is doing with this monitoring data can you talk broadly about the benefits of this system and the understanding you gained through this swamp monitoring program?
2: Sure. And so, first of all, just having our water quality zones out measuring data allows us to see um, episodic events that we otherwise wouldn't be able to monitor. So, if you get a, you know, really big rainstorm that Um, pours down a lot of precipitation, we're able to see in those 15 minute intervals how the salinity might change in that system over time. And something like that, you really can't capture by just taking a, you know, a water sample, um, you know, each day. And so it really allows you to get how that change happens over the course of just one of these storms. And of course, um, with climate change being one of our, our big concerns is it's also allowing us to Um, be able to set ourselves up to look at those long-term changes over time, which you really need a long data set in order to truly understand what long-term changes are occurring. Because of course, you know, there's natural variability in all these systems. And so the longer data you have, the decades worth is when we can um, start to ultimately um, better understand what's going on.
0: For sure. Uh, Collecting data points every 15 minutes 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, gives you that duration and that depth of information that I've got to believe is so important to securing the benefits of our coastal natural areas and the and the people who depend on it economically. Um, Jude, I'm curious about how this system is set up.
1: Sure, Peter. In Padilla Bay, we have five stations that are continuously monitoring water quality. So these instruments that are deployed, they're a YSI EXO instrument with a suite of different sensors on the end that measure dissolved oxygen, salinity, temperature, pH, turbidity. We deploy it, which is the term for placing it in a fixed location so that it continually monitors water quality at that particular site of interest. And then it begins recording.
0: Jude, is the CDMO, the Central Data Management Office, is that unique to each reserve or is there a clearinghouse where the data from all of the 29 reserves around the country uh, is fed into?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually a centralized um, location for all of our data. This is really interesting as we work with um, K-12 through students and our undergraduates who are, we use the CDMO data to let them explore real data like messy authentic data it's a great opportunity to, to give them skills in exploring data and asking questions and visualizing these in, in the form of graphs.
0: I love that. So if you if you're a science teacher in Nebraska and you're talking about estuaries in your you know junior high or high school biology class you could pull up the CDMO website and actually look at real-time data from estuaries all over America. That's kind of a stunning accomplishment and one of the things I love about the Estuarine Research Reserve System. Jude, if I'm a, if I'm a kayaker or a fisherman and I'm interested in visiting one of the reserves and maybe spending a day recreating in the reserve, which is an encouraged, of course, practice, uh, how can this data help them?
1: Well, one of the things users in our area... Padilla Bay is our wind and other data from the meteorological station. So Padilla Bay is broad and shallow and there's a lot of kite surfing and sailing in the area. So um, it gives them immediate access to what wind speeds are and wind direction. And they can look at that over time. Water temperature, if you're as a recreator, if you're interested in swimming or worried about what happens when you capsize your kayak um, and the consequences. So knowing the water temperature And then, one of the things that we've, um, in this area, in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of shellfish and oyster growers that are concerned about pH. And Padilla Bay, along with a lot of other organizations that are tracking pH, um, allow oyster growers to know sort of what the incoming oceanic water, what the pH is, Hmm. what the pH of surface waters is, and to evaluate the consequences of that with respect to you know, how well their oyster cultures are are doing.
0: Carrie, who else uses this data and, and what do they use it for?
2: I'd say one of our biggest users of our data are researchers. And so at the Delaware Reserve, particularly graduate students. And so you know, we have this network of SONs, and our meteorological stations set up for them. And so as they're doing their experiments, they don't need to worry about uh, monitoring the water quality. They have that data already being actively collected for them right there. Mm. And so we have a lot of research going on looking at um, carbon fluxes in our marsh and looking at um, how different sediment processes are occurring. And so they can use the data we have and. We have the historical over 25 years worth at some locations to really understand what's going on in these systems and really support their own research. And of course, the reserve researchers themselves use it. Um, I know for for me, it's always great just to see what are the conditions of our actual, actual reserve? You know, what is the actual salinity range to describe our system? And so um, I say our data gets a really um, lot of mileage just from the mm-hmm. the research we partner with. Some of with come to our site because that data exists. Uh,
0: there are 280 monitoring stations in the 29 National Estuarine Research Reserves. Just an incredible scientific network. Um, Carrie, let's talk to our uh, listeners a little bit about the specific parameters that are uh, monitored uh, from reserve to reserve and why they're important. How about if you pick one and, and walk us through one of the tests or monitoring uh, parameters and why it matters?
2: Sure. So with water quality, the first one that I have to talk about is salinity. And so that's what make our systems brackish is that presence of salts. But how it changes can be an indicator of how much freshwater input is occurring or how salt lines are changing over time. And so in our really dynamic systems, um, especially on the um, Delaware near, is our um, swamp stations are put along a salinity gradient, meaning that we have our water quality songs going up the river so we can capture these different salinity zones. Mm-hmm. And so a more freshwater signal is usually indicative of having more um, fresh water runoff coming from land or from the river it's on, usually from precipitation. And of course, a more salty signal could be something like a storm surge, where you're getting a lot of that, um, like oceanic and estuarine water pushing into um, the river and making it more salty. And so you know, using salt as an indicator of these different parameters is really strong and really demonstrates just how dynamic these systems are. Just to, to give the fun fact is at our St. Jones Reserve, our salinity can change from zero to 30 over the course of a day, which is just wild. <laughs> it's, yep. it, from fresh to basically oceanic.
0: In one day, in one tidal cycle. Uh, Jude, out in Padilla Bay in Washington State, what are some of the key parameters that that tell you about the health and condition of the reserve that you're managing?
1: So I think my, I can't say my favorite parameter. It's like picking my favorite (laughs) child. I don't want to say that, but one of great interest to me and my own research and uh, people who study waters in the Pacific Northwest and across the reserve system is bottom water dissolved oxygen. For a couple of reasons, when dissolved oxygen in bottom waters is low, it means that fish and maybe other sessile organisms, those that can't escape low dissolved oxygen, like oysters and other shellfish or crab, can be stressed or even die under these conditions. So mm. dissolved oxygen is a really good indicator of how conditions are for the organisms that need to use our our estuaries as habitats. Um, and can also be a, an indicator of how extensive eutrophication is. So if we're having excessive algal blooms and that, algal or that phytoplankton biomass sinks to the bottom and it decomposes and it sucks up oxygen, that creates conditions that um, are not good for organisms that need that habitat and it also tells us that we have some imbalance related to eutrophication.
0: You know, raw data is is absolutely in, important into understanding what's happening in these complex estuarine systems. But the real work of of assessing the condition Uh, for uh, the things that most people think and care about, fishing, swimming, enjoying these things, and biological productivity, that kind of stuff, is a function of the interplay of all of these types of data that you guys are collecting through this system uh, nationally. pH, dissolved oxygen, temperature, salinity, conductivity, other parameters uh, Carrie, I've got to think it takes a lot of intellectual horsepower to process and understand the interplay of all of this data that's coming your way every single day. Uh, can you talk about the scientists and the experts in the reserve system and how they contend with this, uh, what has to be a fire hose of data?
2: yeah and so um the data we collect would not be made possible without all the brilliant scientists and all the other folks at the reserve and so here in delaware um i'm the research coordinator and i oversee three environmental scientists who each (laughs) i we we would not have a program without them so um, we have um, one environmental scientist that is in charge of our swamp program and he has been um, keeping this program afloat for the last 16 to 17 years and he's one of the, the experts of the system. So I really lean on him for all the technical questions. Um, but I also have um, uh, the luck to work with staff who have biological expertise as well as sediment expertise. And so combined with all of our different experiences we make for a really dynamic team that can look at these complex systems.
0: Uh, Jude, I know the scientists can handle this kind of subject matter. Of course, they go to school for years, as both uh, yourself and Carrie did in earning your PhDs in this field. Um, but for the general public, how, how are non-scientists and the general public, uh, what can they gain and understand uh, by introducing themselves or becoming familiar with the data a monitoring program that you administer?
1: Peter, I'm going to take an example from a project we've been working on for several years, and that is related to how do we put data, real authentic environmental data, into the hands of teachers and K-12 through students and undergraduates, um, students who are aspiring to be scientists one day. And the the data that we present and collect Allows them to connect with and observe real data collected in coastal areas that they are interested in, and it gives them sort of a personal connection to this. Hmm. Um, there's, you know, the um, there's a big movement in creating opportunities for STEM students—science, technology, engineering, and math students—to do the things that scientists do. It's called science and engineering practices, and so much of science is focused on content by allowing and encouraging and sort of bringing teachers and students along to look at our data they're able to explore it the way carrie and i would in investigating questions we have at each reserve so i think this huge body of data provides great opportunity for people to become more data literate to be more climate literate and to really be um, emerging scientists as they think about the world and the natural world and how we impact it.
0: And how cool is that? You know, and Carrie, one of the th- principal purposes of the National Estuarine Research Reserve System is public education and engagement. Uh, when you have uh, students coming, school kids coming out to the reserve, or college and graduate level students, is the swamp data part of the introduction uh, to the reserve that you incorporate into the education programs that you operate?
2: Absolutely, and so I love getting to participate in the outreach and education programs that our coastal training program coordinator and our education um, coordinator put on. And so um, upcoming in about a month from now, uh, we have our teachers on the estuary program, Tote, Mm. Um, and which I've already committed to giving a presentation to the teachers about the SWAMP data and its availability and how it could be used in the classroom for the students. I also have to give a shout out to the interns that I have had the pleasure of working with over the years and they almost always use SWAMP as one of the primary um, focal points of their research. And it's just so important for them to have access to the data, to really understand and describe the systems, even if it's looking at microplastics or um, blue carbon or the other various um, kind of projects we've had over the years. So I think working with our um, early career scientists and students is really pivotal to have a future coastal scientist sector that's really gonna take the charge and lead to all these great solutions.
0: Mm. You know, when I when I think about, uh what's in the press, in the popular press, when it comes to coastal issues. Uh, We hear a lot about big hurricanes that come to the American shoreline, of course, but there is an emerging and greater interest, I think, every day in climate change as a phenomenon. And I wonder, uh, Jude, if you could talk about how swamp data makes a difference as you try to contend with, understand, and communicate about climate change?
1: Peter, that's a really important thing to reflect on, and specifically, how is our system of monitoring, how's our monitoring network helping understand these big picture questions? And I think there's two places, at least at Padilla Bay, where we can see Swamp helping give us insight into climate change and these uh, long, large-scale, long-term changes. in the pacific northwest a lot of our climate and weather and water quality is influenced by something called the pacific decadal oscillation the pdo it's similar to enso it's it's sort of these big scale decadal cycles of temperature and pressure and and sea level um, without continuous monitoring of water quality than the way that we do with the reserve system it's impossible to tease out what is sort of a a decadal trend versus what is really a long-term change in the ecosystem. Mm. So if you, if we measured things, for example, for nine to 10 years, um, that's still within the cycle of one of our Pacific decadal oscillations. So patterns that we see may actually not be indicative of what the real long-term trends are, let's say with water temperature or sea level. So by following these decadal patterns that sort of cycle up and down and superimposing those on top of our long-term now 30 years worth of data we can begin to tease out what things are really driven by global scale climate changes and what are sort of the variability naturally that occurs in these bigger scale climate changes you know the estuaries and in the pacific northwest You know, we have daily cycles of tides, we have seasonal cycles of temperature, and we have decadal cycles of these big swings with like ENSO and PDO. Um, Teasing all of those out is really hard without a continuous long-term data set. So that's one place where the swamp system is able to give us insight into climate. I think the other is over the past several years, the RC community, the research coordinator community has really come together to start thinking about do we have emergent trends across the reserve system that are telling us more about climate than we would know if we just looked at our reserves alone? So for a long time, we've focused on our individual reserves and understanding water quality and changes within Padilla Bay or Delaware or Apalachicola or whatever reserve you're in. But as we as we see patterns and change, we really need one another to reach out and say like, okay, Carrie, I've noticed over the past three years, this pattern in pH or this particular pattern in chlorophyll. Are you seeing the same thing? And if all of our reserves are seeing similar patterns, we start to recognize that there are national or global patterns emerging that we wouldn't really appreciate if we were just studying our own estuary or our own bay. So the power of the national network and the fact that we've collected all of these data in the same uniform manner, allows us to tease out what are Regional or local effects and sort of pull those out of what are big long-term changes in like sea level or temperature or pH So those are kind of two examples that come to mind
0: Really fantastic explanation and really does uh, Emphasize the power as you say of a national network. That's geographically wide and and of Duration and carry what? In, from your perspective as a scientist and as a research coordinator uh, at the Delaware Reserve, when you think about climate change and the system of monitoring that you're uh, what you operate, uh, what can you add to that?
2: So I think, and this has been um, one of the, the big news pieces, is extreme events and extreme storms. And so... Um, while, I, while climate change can be this slow, gradual change, in a lot of our estuarine systems, we're observing it as an increase in these more extremes, higher highs and you know, potentially lower lows or less lower lows, depending on where you are. And uh, another benefit of the reserve system is the spatial component. And so as a major storm like a hurricane moves along the eastern coast, We have the capability in near real time to track how that storm is moving up the coast. So how is the salinity changing in Florida? And when does it change as we progress up the coast to South Carolina and North Carolina? And do we see any of these patterns happening in Delaware? Um, And I think that that's a really strong and interesting story because, you know, hurricanes are going to impact each system differently because there's going to be those local, you know, watershed specific um, factors that might influence flooding or salinity changes, but it's still that same major storm atmospherically that's affecting each one of these locations. And so I think being able to see how, you know, one storm affects it and then how another storm affects it will ultimately help us better understand how these extreme events are changing and how they're changing in our systems and maybe even help us build our resiliency to the, how those storms are um, impacting our estuarine systems.
0: That's the power of the Ash, National Estuarine Research Reserve System right there, is the is these connections and the resource. dude? Uh, I think, did you say the RCs when the RCs get together? Did I catch that right? Yes, when the RCs, <laughs> the research coordinators <laughs> get together. That's I love correct. that. You know, and that's, that's what's fantastic. It must be very uh, rewarding uh, for both of you as professionals, to have such uh, intimate knowledge of these specific areas that you have the responsibility for year after year and the, uh, the availability of the information you have, and then the opportunity to cross over and discuss uh, the conditions that you're seeing in your system versus others around the country. I just got to think, do you have a conference? Do you have a confab? Do you guys get together? Because it would be a meeting I would love to just be a fly on the wall and listen in on. Carrie, is that something you guys do or can do now with the pandemic? I mean, maybe not so much nowadays.
2: Yeah. So in a a non-pandemic world, um, we have an annual Nears meeting in person. Um, And so it gives us a chance once a year to all be in person, which I think is invaluable because it's really those little sidebar conversations, I've had plenty with Jude, where you really Mm. start to get the juices flowing and really start to talk about, you know, this new sensor that's been developed and this new interesting question that could be applied in multiple locations. So I think some of the best ideas we've had have come from these kind of spontaneous conversations when we're all in person. Um, of course, we can do that virtually, um, and we we have had our virtual meetings, um, but I, I very much look forward to being in person again for these ideas. One of which, um, for an example, is um, we have two phenocams now attached to our meteorological stations. Okay, so time out,
0: time out, See, sure. because <laughs> I'm not a techno person. A phenocam, what is that?
2: So a, a phenocam, so it's short for a phenological mm-hmm. camera, so phenology is the study of nature's calendar, so the timing of seasonal events, like Mm. the the blooming of flowers. And so these cameras can be um, positioned on top of our meteorological stations to take photographs of the vegetation every half hour during daylight. And it allows us to track over time how green the vegetation is. And we can see if that change in um, how often it becomes green, when it becomes green, when it goes into the senescence in fall, if those windows change over time. So Boy. we can start to track if we're getting earlier seasons, for example. Right. And So ideas like that are generated when we have in-person meetings.
0: I love that idea. And I've read about and heard about the migration of fish and bird species away from the equator, maybe further north, uh, attributed to uh, changes in climate, but also in in, in plants and growing season changes, uh, boy, that sounds like right down the middle of a climate change parameter that we need to understand. I'm so glad to hear that that kind of uh, information is being collected. Jude, uh, do, do you have something like that out there at the Padilla Bay Reserve? That sounds pretty cool.
1: Well, one of the things that we are starting to see um, as warmer waters, like you said, Peter, um, as the climate is changing and the the temperature, sort of the latitude at which warm air is a certain temperature at a certain time of year or warm water. Unfortunately, another thing that we're seeing is the expansion of invasive species. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that our research and our stewardship community do in the reserves is tracking and trying to control and monitor and regulate the expansion of invasive species. One of which we are dealing with here in the Puget Sound um, and at Padilla Bay in particular is the European Green Crab, which has been slowly making its way up the coast and moving into the um, into the Puget Sound proper. Um, so I think expansion of invasive species is one of the other things that we're seeing as those warmer waters move north.
0: Well, the system-wide monitoring program that all of the reserves operate is critically important, and I sure hope is, is supported up on Capitol Hill uh, where the funding comes for the entire reserve system, uh, uh, Carrie, can you talk about the challenges ahead for the Swamp Program and and maybe what the next steps are in the development of this fantastic monitoring system you guys run?
2: Sure. So I'm going to take your question and put a positive spin on it. Is I think one of the things to take note on is that the funding for long term consistent monitoring is actually kind of rare in science. Hmm. A lot of um, you know monitoring happens for just two or three years and then the funding runs out and so one of the real powers and benefits of the reserve system is that it's a requirement for our grants to operate the swamp um system and so as long as the reserve exists and the the funding um is allotted each year by congress we will be continuing to take this um this data and so i think there's real power in that In terms of next steps, I'm really excited about using SWAMP as a platform to include or pilot new parameters that we could measure. And so one that I have my eye on and some funding potentially, um, hopefully, available soon is looking at the question of ocean acidification. And so since we're already measuring pH and temperature and salinity, we need one additional parameter like the partial pressure of CO2. So right. the, the um, <laughs> it's a fancy uh, fancy sensor that would allow us to calculate the carbonate system of the water. So that's how we could truly start to understand the ocean acidification question. And so I, I think since we already have these structures and platforms in place, we can really um, you know leverage that to look at additional pressures and parameters that we foresee as being really important measuring into the future.
0: Wow. Jude, I would imagine federal support is very important to the Estuarine Reserve System, including the SWAP program. Can you talk about the congressional appropriations that are are so vital to your work?
1: Yeah, sure, Peter. And I think it's really important to recognize how supportive Congress has been over the years for NOAA and the National Estuarine Research Reserve System to keep this important work going. We've been um, generously funded over the years. Although there's always room for more and more expansion that we need, um, the partnership that exists at each reserve between the federal subsidy and the federal funds, which contributes about 70% to our operating as a reserve, and then our state partners, which contribute another approximately 30%, um, is essential for keeping things moving forward and for the reserves to be what they are today. It wouldn't be without our nonprofit um, partner, the National Estuarine Research Reserve Association, who is really, um, they are really at the forefront of helping helping making sure that Congress knows the value that we bring and advocating for us. And um, I just appreciate the the federal funding we've received to help growing our facilities and expanding our graduate student research opportunities and our education and everything else that we do at our reserves.
0: I want to vote for that. I want to vote. And all those folks out there uh, who listen to the American Troll Line podcast, uh, this is a program to support. If you're ever, you know, contacting your congressman or your senator, you know, put in a line about the National Estuarine Research Reserve and the consistent system-wide monitoring program that these folks operate. It's so important And uh, Jude, I've got to believe that 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 idea of looking at, and this is an interesting brand, but the partial pressure of CO2 and the acidification of the ocean, I know that's been a substantial issue in the commercial shell fishery of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Can you shed some light on that from your perspective out there in Washington state?
1: Well, there's a lot to shed light on with respect (laughs) to... ocean acidification in the pacific northwest for some context you know the pacific northwest is one of the most vulnerable and sensitive to increases in ocean acidification or decreasing ph we mm. have a lot of upwelling here which brings um which brings acidic low DO water into the puget sound which affects our shellfish growers we're also because we have cold water um, the system responds more readily to changes in partial pressure and co2 so there are a lot of things already that are making the pacific northwest poised to um, to be impacted by ocean acidification one of the things that we're really interested in i think i i mentioned that padilla bay has one of the largest eelgrass meadows um, in north america and just north of us in samish bay there's another very large eelgrass meadow but also several shellfish aquaculture um, distribution and, and hatcheries that provide a tremendous amount of the shellfish that go through all, all throughout the West Coast as well as the rest of the country. Um, there's Blau and Taylor Shellfish Farms and others. We are really interested in looking at eelgrass and the role of eelgrass is sort of the co-benefits that can happen when you keep oysters and eelgrass together in the same place as opposed to sort of traditional, we have always excluded them from one another right. for risk of shellfish and aquaculture impacting the eelgrass and protecting those. Um, But it appears that there are a lot of very valuable co-benefits of those organisms and habitats being together. And that's an area where we can probably Help look ahead and move forward on mitigating the effects of ocean acidification on huh. shellfish industry here.
0: Is there some notion that uh, healthy seagrass beds, when integrated into shellfish aquaculture, may modulate some of the acidification effects that concern these growers?
1: Absolutely. Since e- since eelgrass are plants, they mm-hmm. suck up CO two during the day, which yeah. helps you know draw down the CO two and elevate pH, and that. When you have calcifying organisms like shellfish that are they build their shells by taking um calcium and carbonate out of the water and building new shells with it under low pH conditions, um that's really hard to do. So if you combine elevated pH conditions from photosynthesis, um and you sort of we can create yeah. sort of field grass creates somewhat of a halo
0: yeah.
1: of uh of resilience. Um at least that's what we're initial research and observations are showing
0: you know it just points out that 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 this swamp system and the data and and really understanding what's going on is is fundamental to good management decisions and and the stewardship of the american shoreline all around the country we've got to understand this stuff we've got to get this data in place um Carrie, I'd like to ask you in in closing thoughts, uh, in terms of the products or the outputs or the significance of the swamp system uh, from your perspective at the Delaware Reserve, what really jumps out for you in terms of the true value of maintaining this super system of monitoring?
2: Well, I think having the swamp system in place allows us to capture the events that we don't even know yet will be coming and so it allows us to really keep an eye on these systems, but it also is providing us just with that daily data that's going to help us make decisions for, you know, when to go out to sample because we need to know when it's low tide or, you know, when the temperatures hit a um, high enough threshold that it is okay for us to to go out and cross the tributaries to take measurements. And so I think um, having it in place is beneficial today and will be beneficial for tomorrow for things we have yet to even predict might happen.
0: Wow. Uh, Jude, final thoughts from you, please.
1: So I want to I, I really want to highlight the importance of the National Estuarine Research Reserve and the infrastructure we create with SWAMP. Kerry mentioned this, um, and you brought up the idea of graduate students and other students working in the area. Um, a big part of the reserve system is having our reserves function as living laboratories. and By creating this infrastructure of monitoring, um, we are providing a resource that is typically very expensive and hard to fund. So undergraduates, graduates, research faculty, other scientists come to the reserve because they know we can provide this robust and high quality body of data that uh, they are free to use. And then they come in and do other studies or other research projects that sort of link to and rely on those data, but they don't have to collect it themselves. So we gain the value of collaborating with these scientists who are addressing really specific and interesting questions And in return, we provide this long-term understanding of of how variable um, and what the trends are in our ecosystems. And so that sort of collaboration is what makes these reserves as a living laboratory a really valuable asset for continuing to advance coastal science for our partners and universities and other researchers in our area. So
0: very well said, uh, uh, Jude. I appreciate that perspective very much. A collaboration, coordination, understanding the world accurately is the key to doing better in managing our, our precious coastal resources. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Carrie Saint-Laurent, who is the research coordinator at the Delaware Reserve and her compatriot out of the Pacific Northwest, Dr. Jude Apple, the manager of the Padilla Bay Reserve in Washington State. What a what a treat to speak to both of you. And I Wanna thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules uh, to be on the Fresh and Salty Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Thanks a lot, you guys.